Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 94. Port Natal and Delagoa Bay are far away from Cape Town and appeared even further in the early 1820s. The Cape Governor was inevitably more concerned with what lay immediately beyond the colonial frontiers than in these distant ports. Much of what concerned Lord Charles Somerset and had concerned his predecessors already lay along the frontiers. The colony had thrown out an ever-increasing fringe of loose cannons, skirmishers, traders, trek boers, escaped slaves and even rebellious missionaries. The flood of missionaries turned into a tsunami by the mid-1820s. The London Missionary Society was already at work, as you know, and by now they were established along both sides of the Orange River and into the eastern frontier. The Moravians had arrived and were carving out new parishes even further east, while the Wesleyans were already amongst the far-distant Amapondo people. The Zulu had also been raiding these people from shock, a centre of power from the other side, so to speak. There were a number of Scots from Glasgow who found living amongst the Amatosa to their liking, and even missionaries from Germany showed up, particularly from Berlin, and they also began living amongst the Amatosa. The Rhenish and Paris evangelicals arrived too, one to work within the colony and the other headed north into Bechuanaland and then to the Basutu. The LMS and Paris evangelicals were moving along the first stage of what became known as the Missionary Road, which led all the way from the Cape into Central Africa. By now, the chieftains of the Caledon Valley and the open plains north of the Orange River had been squeezed between three expanding zones of instability and conflict. From the south and southwest, parties of Griqua, Cora and Boers were raiding for cattle and cheap labor. To the northwest, the rivalries of Botswana chieftains were spilling across the Vaal River. To the east, the fighting that had seen the Amazulu and the Amandwandwe at war, as well as the Amantetwa, had displaced groups, as you've heard, and some of these had headed across the Drakensberg. It's clear that by 1824 and 25, raids and population migrations spread over the interior of southern Africa north of the Orange River. Communities were being broken up, other new peoples were forming, and this was happening very quickly indeed. Some groups were successful predators, others were large enough to be left alone. In the hilly country of the Caledon Valley, groups also fought one another for control of defensive strongholds. The high, steep buttes and mountains were easy to protect and hard to assault. People were scattered across the landscape and began to seek refuge inside the Cape Colony and the mission stations. Most ended up working as laborers. It is this reason that many now say that the scattering was caused by colonialism alone in order for white farmers to capture slaves and cheap labor. This is tautological and fails to honor the internal dynamics inside African societies that were developing their own political power centers. Shaka did not pop up because he wanted to send slaves to the Cape for the whites. He emerged because he was an extraordinary African who made his own history without Lord Charles Somerset's assistance. Thank you very much. It's an easy narrative to sell to contemporary Southern Africans, but it's actually an insult to the African leaders of the 1820s who were no one's slave, no one's skivvy. Later, of course, this would change, but we have to understand what was going on in the mid-1820s as distinct from what happened next. And as usual, it's a fascinating picture where many forks appeared in the historical road. The fact we ended up taking the path that reaches us today was partly chance, partly fate, 
partly economic, social and military. For years, the Cora and other bandits who thrived in the south moved across the Orange and predated on local Tswana and Sutu people. The Amatlubi had crested the Drakensberg, taking some years to move into the Caledon Valley, and that valley was also being raided by the Batlokwa from the Highveld. These Batlokwa were led by Mpangazita, Matawani and Maantatise. All were feared as warrior leaders and were running a system that included highly mobile little raiding parties that sowed fear amongst the other peoples further south. These three leaders turned some of the defensive hilltop positions into their bastions and by the mid-1820s Matawani had smashed Mpangazita's people and emerged as the most successful bandit king of the Middle Caledon. Maantatisi was based on the Upper Caledon and yet clinging on to nooks and crannies of this mountainous region, there remained smaller groups, like the Bamukedi. These would pay allegiance, protection money if you like, to both Matawani and Maantatisi. To their west, the region was racked by instability. Raiding, fighting, skirmishing, warring, population displacement, all could be said to characterize this area across the Vaal River, if you look at a map, into the Kuruman area and southeastern Botswana of today. They were extremely active groups of people such as the Maputing, the Bafokeng and the Bataung, who had lived earlier south of the Vaal River but had actually been pushed north by the Grikwa and the Kora and the Trekpurs. The Maputing in particular were feared, and in 1823, for example, they had approached the mission station run by Robert Moffat, who was living amongst the Batlaping. Moffat appealed to the Grikwa for help. They did assist him in fighting off the Maputing, using their muskets to great effect. I'll return to this saga in a later podcast when we talk more about Moffat. Of course, the Grikwa and the Kora were trying to settle into their territories, but the Kora on the lower Val and the Grikwa further to the west found the upheavals they had caused boomeranged on them. They were now also having to fend off bandits and skirmishes themselves. Missionaries were writing about these increased clashes, as were traders from the Cape who dared travel into this wild west. To the northeast, the territory was controlled by the Bangwakesi and the Bakwena, who were both militarily strong. North of Robert Moffat's mission station, many Bakhalakhadi and Khoisan lived independently in the area we now know as Khalakhadi. Nearby peoples from southern Botswana, the oldest inhabitants, spoke Khoisan languages and were linked to people like the Kwanakwe, Grikwe, Namakwe and Karakwe. These were the first peoples of what became known as Botswana. The origin of the name Botswana, by the way, is disputed, and ironically, Botswana is the name Europeans first used. One explanation is that it comes from Baatswana, those who came out of each other. Another possibility is that it's from Baatswana, they are the same people. When the first white traders arrived, they could not distinguish these words, so just used the term Botswana. During the 1820s, two groups of foreign invaders, the Bakololo and then Mzilikatsi's Amandibeli attacked the Botswana throughout the country, seizing people and livestock. Some communities were completely ruined, while others were weakened and scattered. To make matters worse, famine and internal conflicts racked the people as local groups then turned on one another to survive. The Sasutu term Difakani and the Isitkoza term Imfatkani are used by historians, as you know. Both words are commonly translated as expressions for the crushing sound made by grinding stones. Difakani and Ipatrani thus referred to a time of crushing. The Botswana across the Orange River had other names for this period. 
Local oral traditions speak of a time of tumult. Some elders, when referring to the Bakololo as well as the Ama and Debele, speak of Matabele invasions for both. Another indigenous term is the time of the black ants. There is a story amongst the people of this region that the time of the black ants comes from an incident involving the Bakwena. In the years before the invasions, the Bakwena were governed by Josi Motswasele II, who was remembered as a powerful but abusive ruler. His misrule led to some of his subjects plotting his execution. And just before he was beheaded, Motswasele is said to have warned that, If I am killed, my father's ants will come to avenge me. He is further said to have prophesied that the countryside would first be overrun by black ants and later by white ants. Tse Tinchuenyana. Indeed, the black ants did arrive first in the form of the Bakololo and Amandebele, and then the white ants followed, the Trek Boers, who'd arrived shortly. So, by the mid-1820s, the Botswana people living in the south of modern-day Botswana were feeling the impact of numerous pressures. These were the days of the black ants of King Khosi. The adherents of Sebetwani of the Bafo King and Molitsani of the Bataung emerged as the main raiders in the southern Tswana territories. The Buffalo King were based on the upper Malopo River, the Bataung along the Vaal River. Both these groups of people lived on the move. They were basically bandits, and they weren't alone. Bana, the Amakwakumalo clan of Mzilikatsi, the feared black ants that King Khosi spoke about, had arrived from the east, and the Botswana people called them the Matabele. There's a propensity for some to gloss over these raiders, underestimating what effect they had on the landscape and the social structures. In Cape Town, reports of what was going on arrived by way of letters from missionaries or the tales spread by traders. They needed something to take their minds off a recession which had swept the Cape, largely due to the death of Napoleon. He died on Santa Elena in 1821, and the large number of troops there left quite soon afterwards. There was therefore no longer a need for a high volume of provisions, and that had a knock-on effect on farmers in the Cape. It's a curious fact that the death of Napoleon had a real impact on the Cape Colony. By now, the Bank of England had also resumed specie payments around the same time. Specie payments means paper money that can be redeemed by banks in some kind of valuable metal, usually gold. But in this case, they proposed making British silver the main currency, replacing the Spanish dollar, which was still in use. The value of the Cape's Rix dollar had dipped by two-thirds, and about half of what remained were forged notes. The British government then effectively lent the Cape around £92,000 without interest. The British wanted to wipe out the worthless Dutch Rix dollar, but it was going to take them another 20 years to get that right. This is another of the many reasons Trek Boers began to consider leaving the Cape. It preceded the Great Trek. The real value of land also slumped as the value of the Rix dollar collapsed and the adoption of the English methods of business further impacted the traditional Dutch financial system on the frontier. By the end of 1824, expenditure far exceeded income, and Lord Charles Somerset was driven to borrow from the Orphan Chamber, the Loan Bank, the Commissariat, and the East India Company. The Orphan Chamber, by the way, was a precursor to the Master of the Supreme Court of South Africa, and administered estates the property of miners, the registration of wills and deaths in the Cape, and managed documents as notaries. There were an awful lot of miners without parents, 
and they sometimes had a lot of money, so the state managed their money for them. The orphan chamber had been instituted at the Cape in 1673. By 1833, by the way, the orphan chamber would become known as the Master of the Supreme Court, and one of its main duties from then on, just out of interest, was to look after money owned by lunatics. And so, with that little financial diversion complete, back to our story. Somerset needed cash, so he did what all political officials do. He helped himself to an imperial loan earmarked for the repair of damage done by storms in the Western Cape. It turned out the loan more than covered the damage, so he thought it appropriate to use the rest of the cash on paying for his civil servants. By now, as you know, Somerset was also fending off journalists who were printing the truth about his spendthrift ways. He began to fend off the missionaries as well, particularly the London Missionary Society. Lord Bathurst, the Secretary of State back in England, peered at the goings-on south with a great deal of suspicion. He read the reports in the Times and the Chronicle, written by George Gregg, the printer who'd helped Pringle and Fairburn. Lord Charles had made the fatal mistake of hacking everyone off. The media, the missionaries, the English settlers, the Amakosa, the Khoikhoi, and in the end, his own government, and not to mention the Trekboers. Lord Bathurst set up an advisory council at Cape Town, which consisted of the governor, muttering under his bewigged breath, the chief justice, the colonial secretary, the officer commanding, the deputy quartermaster general, the auditor general, and the treasurer. They were supposed to pass ordinances in a far more formal and procedure-driven way than the previous governors, who tended to jot down a few ideas using their favorite quill, then handing this to a minion to rewrite with traditional burlesque flourishes, which they'd then sign at some ceremony. This council was to advise the governor on all matters. He was supposed to follow their lead, and he could only act directly in an emergency. His Excellency the Governor could, however, still act against this council if he justified himself to the Secretary of State. This was the first proper example of something that could be called a cabinet, with the main members showing some basic skills like auditing or quartermastering. The council was to deal with quite an interesting proposal, and this was allowing the Eastern Cape to be represented by their own council, by some kind of representative assembly. They fired the first round in what would become a long-sustained but unsuccessful battle for separation by the Eastern Cape. Yes, folks, there it is. As early as 1824, the British were considering setting up South Africa in the same way that Canada was being constructed. It made sense. Grahamstown is 600 miles, or around 870 kilometers from Cape Town. The weekly post carried on horseback in heavy leather bags, took around seven days to make the journey one way. Travellers would ride the 75 miles from Grahamstown to Algoa Bay, then finish their journey to Cape Town in an 80-ton coastal schooner. It was like travelling to another country. For those fresh from Europe, the journey was like travelling from London to Berlin. The Eastern Cape folks had grand ambitions, and some of these involved, believe it or not, Mauritius. Yes, Mauritius. The Eastern Cape looked out towards the Indian Ocean Islands, and it made sense to develop trade with these French islands. Port Elizabeth and Grahamstown merchants were always talking about this. Furthermore, they had begun to develop an obsession with Amatrosa, and the Eastern Capers believed that separation could mean a new license to deal with the perceived threat 
of Nthambe and his sons. The ministry in Liverpool thought about this a lot too. They were not against the idea of dividing the colony on the analogy of two Canadas. They could also control the power of the governors by splitting the territories. So what were the two Canadas, and why was this being considered for the Cape? The two Canadas were formed in 1791 when the British Parliament passed the Constitutional Act splitting the colonial province of Quebec into two separate colonies. The Ottawa River formed the border between the Lower and Upper Canadas. The creation of Upper Canada came after an influx of English settlers who wanted a colonial administration modelled under British institutions and common law, especially British laws of land tenure, similar to the 1820 settlers in the Cape. Lower Canada, however, was French. These folks wanted most of the French-Canadian institutions guaranteed under the Quebec Act, such as the French civil law system. The Quebecois still believe in independence even now, and every few decades radicals call for secession or an uprising or both. The Canadas were eventually merged into a single entity in 1841, à la grande déception de Français du Bas-Canada, some say. Somerset's days were numbered, and with them, the existing system of governance in the Cape. The miseries suffered by the 1820 settlers resounded at Westminster as Henry Brougham and Joseph Hume of Aberdeen attacked him for maladministration, and the onset of the demise of Lord Charles Somerset's lengthy governorship was accompanied by the final demise of the Dutch character of the Cape Colony. Sir Richard Plaskett, who replaced Christopher Bird as colonial secretary, our well-known friend, the Secretary Bird, had this to say. Almost every single department under this government is in a state of total incompetence, wrote Sir Richard about the Cape. The audit office is a perfect farce, he raged. A number of other offices, swallowing up a great portion of the revenue, are held by military officers belonging to Lord Charles Somerset's staff and other sinecurists. <laughs> Wonderful word, that, sinecurists defined as people who hold office that requires little or no work, but provides a salary. Sounds like a rather modern government. Our finances, gasped Sir Dick, are perfectly bankrupt. We have not enough to pay our salaries. So the start of 1825 was a festering new year in the Cape. The colony had been enveloped in an evil miasma, writes Noel Mostat. Full of malice, vindictiveness, accusation, counter-accusation, all arising from the hatred felt between the governor and his acolytes, his sinecurists, and the rest of the folks living there. It was only in that year, the start of 1825, that Lord Charles first travelled to Grahamstown. No wonder the folks there hated him when he eventually pitched up in his gleaming carriage five years after the settlers first arrived having survived pitched battles, drought, floods, death, destruction, bankruptcy. After five years, Lord Charles arrives at the frontier town of Grahamstown and passed up and down twice in the carriage. No crowd, no cheering, said Phillips, an 1820 settler. Furthermore, Lord Charles wore a blue coat, sash, veil and holding a parasol. So naturally, Phillips wrote that it reminded him of an old lady of seventy riding in Hyde Park. And yet, this conflicted governor, for all his self-indulgence and haughty behaviour, 
had recognised a few things long before his compatriots. One was the unforgivable treatment of slaves, imposing strict regulations on what was allowed, and anticipating emancipation, he even opened a school for slave children. He then hanged a white farmer for beating a slave to death, one of the first governors to try to impose the law on the Trekboers. This drove a wedge between the government and the Trekboers, as well as the new white settlers from England. Criticism was mounting. We'll deal with what happened next in episode 95. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.